In this conversation, Reverend G.D. McCauley, due to circumstances beyond his control, could not be part of the conversation as planned. So, in order to get his message across, he sent us a short recording that we played before the actual conversation. Hope you enjoy. I am Reverend Father J.D. McCauley. I'm the founder of House of Rainbow, an organization that supports the well-being and the journey of Black African lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Christians on the crucial journey of reconciling their faith and their sexuality. Uh, a few months ago, I was ordained to priesthood uh, in the Anglican Church of England, and I'm so excited for the call of God over my life. And I'm sure that many of you will wonder, where is this conversation so important today to talk about queer love, to talk about the love of queer people, same gender loving individuals. I wanna focus just briefly on pride, diversity and inclusion of the LGBTQIA communities in our world. It is so important and so crucial today that we need to focus on the well-being of individuals who are different in our communities. For me as a person, pride is important. Diversity and inclusion is essential. There is no doubt that many people go through many challenges in their own communities and also in their churches. It wasn't easy for me. I also had to go through many challenges. You know, I questioned my Christian faith. I questioned the, my love for God, God's love for me. But I've come to a conclusion that God loves me just the way I am. God loves me and does not require me as a gay man to apologize to anyone about what God has made. The Bible tells us that for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God makes no mistakes in creating the queer people. As a black African myself, as a British Nigerian uh, who is open about his sexuality and a priest in the church of God, I strongly believe that God is calling us to a place of pride that we can celebrate all of who we are. For me, I've always echoed that the, uh, that the acronym for G-A-Y means God adores you, God accepts you, God affirms you, God anoints you. And I am saying to people out there, we do not have to be apologetic for who we are. But I recognize that we live in many places that are still very hostile against the queer community. We live in countries like Nigeria, Jamaica, uh, Malaysia, and many other places around the world where they have inherited the colonial laws, where still same-sex relationship behaviors and desires are punishable by law. We know that this is wrong. We know that this is a, a level of injustice that we must continue to fight. The black consciousness is really about, you know, creating an awareness for many people so that we can come to a place that we understand fully who we are. And I'm so glad and so happy that you've invited me to this festival. It is important for me to understand the, 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 the essential um, impact that this will have on many people's lives. For me, being gay is also uh, a journey. It's a journey for us and for our families. It's a journey in which we continue to continue to fight the good fight for justice, justice for our transgender siblings, justice for our bisexual siblings, justice so that we can be who we are in our society and in the house of God. 
And, and finally, for me, we need to own our truths. We live in environments that are extremely homophobic. Our workplaces, even our religious communities are homophobic. We need to own our truth. We need to live out our truth to the best that we can. We need to speak our truth. We need to do this even when we stand alone. It is not easy. You will be rejected by your family. You will be rejected by your community. But one thing I can assure you is that you will not be rejected by God. God loves you, and I hope that the conference is continuing. The festival will continue to energize you, and you continue to find positivity in the conversations and in the utterances that you will hear. God bless you, and take care of yourself. Goodbye. The festival provides a global online platform for the commemoration, celebration, and sharing of vital histories and stories that boost the awareness and impact of the pride, power, and practice of people of African descent. The festival aims to build awareness around how each of us can take the necessary steps for restitution and repair. Your conversation lead tonight is Zoe Sazo. Welcome and enjoy tonight's conversation. Over to you, Zoe. Hi, good night, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So I'll just say a quick introduction. Good night, my name is Zoe Sazel, as she'll introduce. Um, I'm a digital content creator as well as an LGBTQ activist locally. Um, and so excited to chair this conversation and to kind of, you know, lead the things along as we go along this evening. So I wanna kick it off by introducing, having our panelists introduce themselves. So first, I'd like to say welcome to Dr. John Paul. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Um, oh yeah, so about me. Um, <laughs> so my name is Dr. John Paul. I live here in Los Angeles, California. Um, I am a writer, educator, and speaker. Um, I ultimately focus on a lot of topics related to the intersections of Black and queer liberation. And I often write about um, the importance of not only just talking about how can we um, reshape or re-envision the ways that Black queer people uh, see joy, but ultimately how we often talk about our healing and the experiences that we have, um, both in, you know, in media and outside of media as well. I've done quite a few things in entertainment, um, and I'm currently working on my very first memoir. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Fabulous, fabulous. Thank you so much, Dr. John Paul. Um, and next up, we have Amir Hall. Amir, tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. Hi, Dr. John Paul. Hi, Zoe. Mm -hmm. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm a Trinidadian and Trinidadian artist, uh, interdisciplinary artist and writer. And I work at the intersection of spirituality embodiment, writing, and performance. And that's kind of um, where I try to think about uh, queer uh, representation, queer identity, um, and queer empowerment. Um, so I tend to use personal narratives to explore larger societal questions. Um, yeah, that's me. Yeah, fabulous. Great, great, great introductions. And also tonight we were supposed to have live with us, um, but they weren't able to join us. So we have a video from Jeanne McCauley, who is um, a priest in the Anglican Church um, based in London and also currently running the Rainbow House. Um, 
over there in London. So Sean, correct me if I'm wrong with that name. But um, yeah, so we have a, a video from G.D. Macaulay. And since they weren't able to attend, so that'll kind of lead us in. I am Reverend Father J.D. Macaulay. I'm the founder of House of Rainbow, an organization that supports the well-being and the journey of Black, African, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Christians on the crucial journey of reconciling their faith and their sexuality. Uh, a few months ago, I was ordained to priesthood uh, in the Anglican Church of England, and I'm so excited for the call of God over my life. And I'm sure that many of you will wonder, where is this conversation so important today to talk about queer love, to talk about the love of queer people, same gender loving individuals? I want to focus just briefly on pride, diversity and inclusion of the LGBTQIA communities in our world. It is so important and so crucial today that we need to focus on the well-being of individuals who are different in our communities. For me as a person, pride is important. Diversity and inclusion is essential. There is no doubt that many people go through many challenges in their own communities and also in their churches. It wasn't easy for me. I also had to go through many challenges you know, I questioned my Christian faith. I questioned the, my love for God, God's love for me. But I've come to a conclusion that God loves me just the way I am. God loves me and does not require me as a gay man to apologize to anyone about what God has made. The Bible tells us that for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God makes no mistakes in creating the queer people. As a black African myself, as a British Nigerian uh, who's open about his sexuality and a priest in the church of God, I strongly believe that God is calling us to a place of pride that we can celebrate all of who we are. For me, I've always echoed that the, uh, that the acronym for G-A-Y means God adores you, God accepts you, God affirms you, God anoints you. And I am saying to people out there, we do not have to be apologetic for who we are. But I recognize that we live in many places that are still very hostile against the queer community. We live in countries like Nigeria, Jamaica, uh, Malaysia, and many other places around the world where they have inherited the colonial laws. We're still same-sex relationship, behaviors and desires are punishable by law. We know that this is wrong. We know that this is a, a level of injustice that we must continue to fight. The black consciousness is really about, you know, creating an awareness for many people so that we can come to a place that we understand fully who we are. And I'm so glad and so happy that you've invited me to this festival. It is important for me to understand the, 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 the essential um, impact that this will have on many people's lives. For me, being gay is also uh, a journey. It's a journey for us and for our families. It's a journey in which we continue to continue to fight the good fight for justice, justice for our transgender siblings, justice for our bisexual siblings, justice so that we can be who we are in our society and in the house of God. 
And, and finally, for me, we need to own our truths. We live in environments that are extremely homophobic. Our workplaces, even our religious communities are homophobic. We need to own our truth. We need to live out our truth to the best that we can. We need to speak our truth. We need to do this even when we stand alone. It is not easy. You will be rejected by your family. You will be rejected by your community. But one thing I can assure you is that you will not be rejected by God. God loves you, and I hope that the conference is continuing. The festival will continue to energize you, and you continue to find positivity in the conversations and in the utterances that you will hear. God bless you, and take care of yourself. Goodbye. Okay, great. So that was a video from Gide McCauley, who is a priest ordained in the Anglican Church in um, England. Um, and yeah, doing some great work with that organization there, um, the House of Rainbow. Um, and as he said, the main purpose of that organization is to, you know, bridge the gap between religion, faith, um, specifically the Anglican, the Christian faith, and the LGBTQ community. So I found what, what some of what um, GD brought in was so interesting. And also, you know, just to remind everyone that our conversation today is titled Love is Love. Um, and so I think that's a great jump off point, you know, in terms of the reconciliation of faith faith and faith spaces um, and, you know, queer identity, you know, and so I'll throw that out to uh, Dr. John Paul Anamir, you know, in terms of your own experiences with navigating this, this cross, this junction. Mm. Yeah. Amir, do you want to go? You can start. Yeah, I can jump in. I just made a post about this on Instagram recently uh, about this realization. I was just missing church. You know, and I, and I am Christian, so I grew up in a Christian household and experienced, you know, the joys that come with that, the community that comes with that, and also as a queer body, uh, the kinds of uh, oppressions and um, constrictions that come with that, right? And I was missing church, but I was missing a specific, or rather two specific churches, uh, and I remembered there's a specific church in Brooklyn called St. Paul's Methodist that I attend when I'm there. And I go there with an auntie and then there are several other aunties who I now know. And I, I, never, felt, I never felt that sense of, of needing to prove myself, you know? I never felt any sense of, um, like there was never any, I never heard any anti-LGBTQ messages coming from the pulpit and even my aunties even though i'm not open to them about my identities um they you know you know they know <laughs> you know they sat me down once and they were like yeah if you um when you start dating and you get a wife or a husband or whatever you know what i mean and so there's always these ways that these communities have in like navigating the silence and still finding ways to name and give and give language and give acknowledgement. So, um, and I found that there, and it was sad to me that um, I'm still unable to find it here. You know, mm. 
Um, and I'm sure there are queer people who, who, you know, but for me and my experience, it's, and it was sad to realize that I could find it there. I found it in a church in Johannesburg um, that I was introduced to when I was there. And it was all lesbian women, um, including the, the priests at the time. Uh, yeah, so I found it elsewhere. And so I think my journey right now is trying to find it in the place that I am. Uh, yeah, so I'd love to hear about your experiences too, Dr. Jean-Paul, um, about where you are in that, in that realm. Um, you know, so I reveled a lot with this, um, specifically, you know, being in the place right now where I am, you know, working on my proposal for my memoir, um, and it being so deeply rooted in the way I developed my own image of myself through the lenses of religion in a lot of ways, because in, you know, here in America, religion is very much law in a lot of different ways, especially in the Black community, and so, when you get to a place, you know, I, I didn't grow up traditionally Christian. I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. And so there are a lot of expectations. There are a lot of uh, elements and, and, and ideologies that you have to basically live up to and perform, you know. And when I got to a certain age, I started to recognize, you know, even at a young age that I, I didn't live up to those expectations. Um, I've always been extremely effeminate. I've always had a very feminine voice. I've always presented very much um, quote unquote womanly. And I get, I, I got that a lot growing up. Um, and there were years of my life where I, I started to hate that about myself. And then I got to a place where I said, wait a second, there's such a blessing. You know, and, I, and I would say I hated a lot of it because I was taught to hate it. And so then there was this notion of me having to kind of reclaim it and me having to kind of relearn who I was in doing the work to figure out how do I love myself in the way that I present. And so when we say this notion around the conversation of like love is love, right? Um, this idea that for, I think specifically for me, and I want to speak to my experience, and I think there are folks out there who have said that they feel this way too, that I think a big part of being Black and being queer is really having to kind of go back to your roots in a lot of ways, unpacking the damage and the hurtful things that people say and do to you, and then figuring out how do I learn to live with that, but also learn to re-love and, and find joy for myself. So you know, even though I currently don't, I don't consider myself religious, I definitely consider myself more spiritual. And I will say that I have had conversations with people where I have said, I know for a fact that the world, the universe, God, Buddha, um, whoever you, Beyonce, whoever you want to name has put me here on this earth um, and, and said that there was something special for me to do. And I, I think I've, I've, I've really learned to own that in terms of loving who I am. And so, um, I really, I, I, I definitely feel very much what the pastor is saying, that I do truly believe that there's this element of us having to really just see ourselves in the eyes um, outside of religion and being able to say, I love who I am, um, the world, the universe, whatever, didn't, didn't make any mistakes with me. And I have to accept the fact that I am who I am and I have to learn um, or work through to love that. And I think that that's currently where I am within my own experience. Okay, lovely. And just something Amir um, mentioned, which I wanted to bounce back at you is, um, you said that you've been having a hard time finding that here in, Tr in Trinidad. Um, and tying back into Dr. M um, not, sorry, not Dr. Um, G.D. McCauley's um, reverence, 
comment on the lingering effects of colonialism and colonialism being attributed as one of the, um, and we have colonialism here, whereas the US has, um, you know, the recent history of slavery. So, you know, I wanted to kind of touch on that in terms of Amir, you, you specifically, whether you believe that that could be attributed to one of the, the tough aspects of navigating, trying to find a space like that here. Yeah. Um, yeah, those, those legacies definitely exist. And even in the wake of our recent overturning of the buggery laws here in Trinidad and Tobago, which I know you um, were an activist um, during that time period, Zoe. Uh, even in the wake of that, uh, homophobia still exists. And, and in a way, I feel like, and this was, I, I wasn't there for that period, but a, a lot of people had the sense that homophobia even was exacerbated, you know, out of this, you know, backlash and fear that was coming. Um, and of course, it's, it's, there's so many, I mean, historical reasons for why it exists so virulently here and why it exists so virulently in Jamaica. And uh, it's often surprising to me to hear from other people in places like Nigeria and Jamaica that Trinidad actually have it nice, right? Even though, you know, we can be critical of ourselves. And yeah, I feel like in my journey, I mean, to, to go back to the love is love, in my journey, it's really been about love and fear, right? Recognizing that they are opposing forces and that fear and shame abound in the Caribbean. Um, and fear and shame are kind of the ways in which we've learned to navigate selfhood, self-presentation and, self, um, and self-protection. And so, so much so much of masculinity in, in Trinidad and in other places is, comes from the fear of being considered womanly, you know? Um, so having learned that, I, I learned that there's power in magnifying where love exists, right? And that love, even love, as it exists in human bodies, needs kind of like, in the same way that we, as we grow, we tread our boundaries and those boundaries become wider over time. Um, we as agents of love, as queer people, we, we, we learn that the love for us is so small from early on, you know? We learn that the boundaries are right beyond the tips of our toes. And so we learn to, to you know, we're walking, but we're not really walking and we're, we're, we're hyper aware of the boundaries and of crossing them. And sometimes that's self-inflicted, right? Sometimes it's inherited just from parents or from a wider community. And my journey specifically has been about recognizing who drew those lines, right? It wasn't me, you know, I reinforced them, but I'm tracing over lines that have been drawn for generations, which is to say, um, when I draw on internalized homophobia, I'm drawing on a historic white supremacist notion of homophobia that is now espoused by black and brown people in Trinidad and Tobago. And so for me, it's been about drawing that line, about recognizing that I myself am defining the boundaries of my own love 
for myself. Drawing that line and with each time drawing it a little bigger to include a little more of myself. Um, and I think that is where I, I connect with um, what Dr. Jean-Paul was saying about reclaiming, you know, reclaiming that, that love and... Um, yeah, and, and actually that is something I was very much going to, you know, bring Dr. John Paul in to kind of speak more about is, you know, in, in your experience of having grown up in such a um, unique, and I would say unique from the position of being specifically opposed um, to the idea of um, same to the loving, um, Dr. John Paul, how has that process of not just unlearning, but reclaiming um, identity and, and not just that identity, but the love of self within that identity. Um, how's that been for you? Yeah, you know, I'm not gonna lie. I, I, I always say it starts probably with a really good therapist. Um, <laughs> and I, I definitely go to therapy every two weeks and I talk to my therapist about, you know, all the different ways that, you know, that hatred and it, it's so interesting because it's so insidious and it manifests in so many different ways. And I think that it manifests in my own personal relationship with my partner. It manifests with my relationship with my family. It manifests with the relationships I have with friends um, and the work that I do as a writer, educator. There are all of these things. And so I think the, the, com the conversation around this notion of like, what does reclamation mean? Um, you know, something that I've had to, you know, kind of come to terms with in therapy. My therapist, I've, I've been with her for two years. She's a black woman. And I think that's also been extremely helpful with me is, is having a black woman who is Nigerian who understands what it means to live between both diasporas, right? Like she's from Nigeria. She grew up in a Nigerian home. Um, you know, I'm American, but I also have Nigerian heritage and roots. And so there's all of these different elements that come into play when we talk about what identity means in terms of reclamation. And I think, in the, you know, the one thing I will say is that when I met her, I think a big part of me was so angry because I felt like, well, if God loves me, if, you know, if God truly cares about me, then why would he or they give me this bag to carry, right? Why would they make me this person that that's hated by everyone, right? Like the world hates me, my family hates me, white people hate me. Like there's all these elements of like where hatred looks like and what it manifests, you know, as. And so I, I, I reveled with that and I think it made me angry. And then I met my therapist and she said, you know, you come in here so often ready to fight when really not everybody is, is you know, not everybody's here, you know, to, to, to hurt you, right? And so I think that that's what the big reclamation, the, that whole reclamation piece of, of my life looks like is I deserve to be happy and I deserve to find joy and I don't have to wake up every single day waiting to like fight someone per se, right? Like I don't have to go into conversations defensive. I don't have to worried that someone's going to judge me based off of my queerness and really understanding too that if someone does judge me or have a problem with me that's not my problem you know and I think that that's been the biggest thing that has really helped me kind of get away from this whole notion of being so mad at the world for having this walk is really starting to understand that my blackness my queerness my black and my queerness has nothing to do with anyone else but me. And so if someone else is angry or feels a way about that, that's not my, that's not my problem. And I think that that's been the biggest way for me to kind of reclaim this, this joy that I now carry with me. You know, people always look at me and say, you know, you radiate, you know, you're radiant. Something about you has, a, you know, the, the light that you carry is so bright. And I go, yeah, because that's a light that I had to turn on. 
that the world was working to literally put out. And so now I'm in this place where I walk into any space and I go, I am the light. And if you don't like my light, then you don't need to be in my space. You know, mm. and, and that includes family too. You know, that includes family, that includes coworkers, that includes, you know, anyone and everyone. And so, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm learning that I'm not for everybody and everybody's not for me. And I think that that's been the biggest thing that has really helped me kind of just take that load off and really just understanding that I have, if, if you know, if, if my mom or my brother or my cousins get the right to wake up every day happy, then why can't I? And I think that's been the biggest thing that I've really started to like utilize as kind of my walking, you know, my walking quote unquote papers, right? Every day I wake up asking myself, you, you know, what's going to make you happy today? You have that right to be happy. Right. Yeah. And and I, I want to just even push that further along and ask you how how is, you know, even in this conversation of love is love and, you know, in the conversation of persons of queer identity, um, fighting that battle of coming to terms with loving self and then um, loving self in spite of persons that we love, not, you know, really creating space in which communal love could be shared. And so I guess mm. a part of that question is, you know, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate those protection of, you know, going into spaces, familial spaces, workspaces, faith spaces, where our light is not received, our light is not welcome, um, especially familial spaces, you know, and how do we navigate that? And I, I, I'll bounce it back to you, to you both. You know, how do you navigate those spaces in which you still want to ensure that your light, you know, still shines and you, uh, you come to the table with love and respect, but it's not necessarily reciprocated. Oh, yeah. Oh. I like, I really love Dr. Jean-Paul, what you said about light and be, that thing being something that you had to turn on and that thing being that some, something that's so visible to everyone. Um, and I remember in my journey, uh, it, it's been difficult, a little bit difficult with my family, right? Um, even though no, they, they're, very ex they're very accepting, but you know, there are limits to what that acceptance looks like. And part mm -hmm. of it is um, with my family learning that like this is a light you're familiar with you know what i mean like it's almost as though you're you're reteaching them how to see it yeah you, you know because the light has always existed so for instance i remember part of why i was i was so um for a long time i was really insecure about my voice because i also got that like you know so feminine or whatever thing growing up but there was a point in time when that was considered beautiful you know and, and um, it was a thing to boast of, oh yeah, he sounds like his mom. He sounds exactly like his mom. And it was a, a mm -hmm. thing that was considered beautiful. And so finding it, I think sometimes we have to guide our loved ones, right? To say, this is, this is something that, that, that you know is beautiful, you know? And even in my concept of God, uh, my conversation with God has gone from, you know, please love me despite this thing to... I know you love me because of this thing. Like this, this thing that I've been given is a gift, right? Um, and you work through it. And, and that's, that's been a really uh, empowering way for me to navigate those, those two spaces, the familial and the kind of like spiritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think 
so kind of going off of that, I think there's this notion that family has to love you unconditionally. Um, and I think that some family, you know, specifically the ones that are most close to us have never been challenged in the ways that they have to love um, and have real conversations even about the moments that they too didn't show up perfect. And, you know, we had, we had to figure out how to love them too, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's something real that I had to have a real conversation with my, my own mother about, right? Um, my father was never in the picture. And to this day, I'm very thankful for that. I, I used to grow, I grew up, you know, why did my father want me? And now as an adult, I go, I'm thankful that he stepped back because I didn't want someone to be in my life who genuinely didn't want to be there. Whereas my mom wanted to be there, but my mom just didn't know how to be there. Um, and now as an adult, we have real conversations about that, right? My mother is a great mother. Um, she's a beautiful person, but there are elements to her that she says, you know, for her, it was, I don't, you're a queer black kid. My whole life, I've grown up being taught that queer is wrong. I don't know how to love you, right? And so, or I don't know how to love you through that. And so there becomes this conversation of, okay, well, you have your faults, I have mine. I don't consider my queerness a fault, but I do understand that we both have to figure out how do we work through this and learn to love each other. And so I think for me, when you ask this question, you know, what, what, you know, what do you, how do you, how do you process or think about this notion of like coming to the table with people? Um, I genuinely look at it from this prospect of we both have to be here to do the work, right? Um, I want you to see your mess and I, and I have mine and, you know, we're going to bring it into the same room and let's not throw stones about who is worse off and why. It's this idea of we both have things that we have to work through. How do we love each other and work through them together? Um, and we may not always see eye to eye on that, but I want to know that you're willing to put in the same amount of work, um, effort, and love. And I think that that's been the thing that has really helped heal me and my own mother's relationship. I mean, in 2016, I cut her off completely and said, we're not, if you can't love me without limits, then we can't, we can't talk. Um, and we didn't talk probably up until 2018. And then we finally came to a point where my mom said, I, I heard you. I understand what you, you know, I understand what's going on. I get it. I really want to be there for you. And since then, we've been just daily calling each other and having conversations about what's going on in our lives and how do we process that. And so I think that that's been the thing for me. I think I, I only, only want to surround myself or be at the table with people who genuinely want to be at the table with me. Um, I'm not going to go, I always think about what my mom would say, mama says, I don't go where I'm not wanted. And I think that that's genuinely <laughs> my whole lived experience now is I'm not going to anybody's space if they don't want me there. Um, and that's law. Right. And going off of that, I think honoring to honoring the efforts, honoring the people that show up with, with welcome, with invitation, with guidance, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and not pushing them away in anticipation of, of you know, failure or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I love that, you know, and I think that, um, 
the meeting of the two, you know, the, the meeting of ourselves at the places in which we refuse to take ourselves into places that we're not welcome. And then the meeting of the folks which are still not at the place that we want them to be in order for us to meet them, but we still meet them where they are, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I guess this kind of moves into one of my next questions, which is the meeting of the spaces between queer identity and African identity you know, um, African history identity and also connection to, you know, current day um, African identity. You know, both of you, um, Dr. John Paul, you mentioned, you know, being of strong Nigerian heritage and even having that circle back in your life through now um, a Nigerian woman who has come into your life in the form of um, your psychologist, which is, you know, mother, mentor. Mm-hmm. And Amir, I know that um, some of your travels and some of your creative work has been in Lagos. So I want to throw that out there to you all. I think we can um, kind of move into that aspect of the conversation now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amir, Dr. Paul, let's throw it, I'll throw it to you oh, okay. first. Okay, you'll throw it to me. Okay, cool. I'm just trying to make space. Um, so I think yeah. for me is, um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've really kind of learned or I've started to understand in terms of like that intersection, right? Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, her theory of intersectionality, I think is is now becoming a global phenomenon when we talk about the ways that oppression shows up and, but then also talking about this idea of like reverence, right? How do we revel with this idea of who we are, where we come from, what we've been through? And I kind of I go back to this notion. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you all know who Audrey Lorde is or if you follow Audrey Lorde's work, but there is a quote um, that she talks about in this idea of, you know, uh, um, basically, you know, cre- her, her whole concept was this notion of creating her own vision of herself and creating the life that she wanted to live because she knew that if she didn't, that other people would take that and basically they would, they would start to create visions of her that she wasn't happy with. And I think that that's been the biggest thing for me is instead of me being so angry about the trauma that follows the Black experience and being so upset about the trauma that follows the Black queer experience, what type of image, what type of experience do I want to create for myself? And I think that that for me is just this idea of learning to understand that a lot of that trauma didn't start with me. A lot of that trauma, a lot of that that anger, a lot of that frustration, a lot of you know the mean things that people say to me as a Black queer person, again, really had nothing to do with me. And so I, I have to really sometimes step back and go, okay, I know that this is frustrating <laughs> and I want to make sure that I'm not painting this picture that every day is rainbows and ponies for me here in America, because it's not. Um, and I don't know how much you all know of what's going on right now, but considering the president that we have, considering white supremacy working the way that it, it is over yes. here in America, it's very volatile when you start adding in all the other elements of identity, right? Um, being black right is now, already- especially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being being black is already enough but then you add in being queer and you have these people who are following this man who's very anti-black and very anti-queer that are that are running things it can put you in danger but I definitely get I, I definitely think about this a lot in this notion of like you know I have this conversation with myself a lot what is fear and what is it meant to do and I think that that's been the ways that I've been able to really kind of reckon with you know my blackness and my queerness and the intersection of both is really living in this idea of knowing that you know 
for years, white supremacy, white supremacist, all of these people, you know, even down to, you know, the slave owners, right? They utilized fear as a way to control black people. And I just, I, I genuinely wake up every day going, I recognize that that's a part of the truth and a part of my history and my legacy, specifically knowing that I have traced a lot of my history and how the slave trade worked for my, you know, my, geneal my genealogical pieces around me. But I think for me, what it really comes down to is this notion of not letting fear become that one thing that kind of drives me or keeps me moving. So I'm really, I'm just really, really mindful about that. And I think that that's been extremely helpful for me. Yeah. We, we still have Zoe, Zoe? Yeah, I think Zoe might be coming back, hopefully. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just um, respond to that, uh, trying to sit with what Dr. Jean-Paul was also saying, but um, yeah, fair, fair is a big part of that. I think also this idea of Africanness and queerness. Sorry uh, about that. I, I'm back. Just want to make sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, I just had a little glitch in the matrix. Sorry no. about that. You continue, Amir. Yeah, just... Um, Africanness and like queerness, right? Um, blackness, uh, especially as a Caribbean person, you know, um, both are contested, right? So on, on one hand, Africanness and blackness is something that's inherent, but something that mm -hmm. I think, especially in my con family context, um, um, some aspects of that like carried shame, right? And so there was some distancing around, okay, you know, the term people use in Trinidad is old nigga, old nigga thing. You know what I mean? So there's some distancing from blackness too that happens that we've also inherited. And then queerness is seen to be completely foreign to specifically black mm -hmm. people. It's, it's seen to be more permissible among white people or like, you know, non-black um, people of color and that kind of thing. So. Growing up with those two was, was always a, uh, um, a conversation for me that I was interested in having. And there's this idea that, you know, yeah, again, that Black people are not supposed to be LGBTQ. Everybody else mm -hmm. could be, you know what I mean? But Black people, no. And it, it's so interesting because when I went to Lagos, that's the most sexually active I've been in the world. Mm. You know, and mm -hmm. I've been to Europe, I've been to um, America, and, you know other other countries and it was lit it was lit for the girls <laughs> in Lagos. i'll tell you that much although of course it's not it's not all rosy and there's real danger that queer people i don't want right. to mention that but and then on the in other words you did not feel an active sense of suppression or oppression mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think i felt it in other ways so okay. actually the, the and romantically, the, the opportunities existed, but they had to be navigated in silence. So there were no gay bars. The apps were dangerous because a lot of people I actually met had, had experienced catfishing and had been, you know, experienced physical violence. And so there's a different way to navigate it, but the, the, the number, you know, the sheer quantity um, and, and the community was, was undeniable. And then when I went to South Africa, uh, Johannesburg was the only place where I've, that, that I've ever been where I attended a church that was full of queer people, only queer people. There was not a straight person in there. I was the only man, in fact, the only person that identified a man. 
as, as a man uh, in that space. Um, and so it's interesting and to- how me. was that space? How was that experience, that space? You said that was in Johannesburg. Yeah. yeah. How was that? Beautiful, transcendental. It was the first place, the first spiritual church that was explicitly Christian where I felt safe in all my identities, where I felt safe in being Black, in being a man, in being um, queer, you know? In, yeah, I was just held, even though it wasn't even in my own language. Like um, somebody had to translate for me, uh, but it was a beautiful experience. And to me, it's still, it's significant to me that I have found um, such important queer community on the continent of Africa, more so than I've actually found here in Trinidad and Tobago. Mm, right brings into the question this idea of queerness as non-African or non-Black uh, because I think as I also experienced in, in America um, like that's I found community with predominantly Black queer people you know and so that's been kind of kind of my journey is finding that that Blackness and queerness are like especially Blackness in the new world in, in, in the Caribbean and, and uh, South, Southern and and North America, because, because Blackness began in this annihilation, you know, like, because our identities began there, so much of our gender formations, of our racial formations are new, you know, necessarily. Like, Cudella Forbes is a Jamaican writer, and she writes about the gender in the Caribbean as hermaphroditic, right? Taking mm. off the qualities of both male and female, um, you know, characteristics. And I've seen that in my own life. My father was the primary cook of the house. Well, my mother would cook, uh, my mother would cook and they would share dishes. And, you know, there was this real sense of, of equitability in there. And it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like uh, my grandmother was the head of, of, of her household on my father's side. She was the one that worked and provided for the children. And a lot of women are the heads of household in, households in Trinidad and Tobago. So, um, like, it seems to me, I would even say that queerness is actually, like, it belongs here more than it belongs anywhere else. Mm. Because of our history and the way that, that our history has just rendered these categories so loose and watery. Um, and because we're actively generating and defining these, these categories daily, uh, it makes sense. Like, queerness has always been here. And, you know, like, this is the best place for it to, to blossom, really. That's what I'm thinking. I love that. I, I love, love, love that perspective. Um, and something else I wanted to kind of um, take on is, Dr. John Paul, from your perspective, um, what are the ways in which you've been able to inculcate spaces of spirituality, spaces of community more so, um, that maybe church in, in, in another sense may provide, but so church in, in your own sense, you know? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Especially so in the current climate of what's Ooh. happening in the United States. Yeah. Whew. Um, well, you know, I don't know if you all know, but um, COVID is very rampant here. Um, and so, 
we're dealing with numbers being higher than high at currently at this moment. And so um, I think one of the things that I have found as somewhat of a blessing in this moment that feels like a curse is the use of social media. Um, I've been able to connect with people via Zoom, being able to connect with people via Twitter, um, having DM messages or text messaging, you know, having group chats with friends um, where we, you know, crack jokes or we offer up, you know, each other, you know, some, some of my friends will buy me breakfast or we send money back and forth to each other to take care of each other. Um, it's just this, this notion of, you know, what can we do to support each other? Um, I know this may sound really silly, but I even have, I, I bought, I don't know if you all know what a Peloton bike is, but it's an exercise bike and there's community there, right? So I have a community of people within my exercising, you know, world that I, I found community. And I think the biggest thing for me, I think has been, you know, I think the one thing I can always say about Blackness, specifically American Blackness, is the idea that we've always been resourceful. Um, and I think that that's been what it has been for me is instead of feeling like I'm alone in this moment and, and getting so caught up in, you know, what I don't have and about what it feels like to be in this, you know, this two bedroom apartment I live in really doing the work to find the community that will help me. And so, you know, again, I have friends who are writers and educators and all we really do is, you know, if we, if at a, there was a moment where we were comfortable enough to like meet at a park and have lunch because the numbers were okay, now we can't do that. Um, so, you know, what we've been doing is, is, you know, we have Sunday, basically we have what we like to call, you know, uh, we have Sunday church where we get together on Zoom and we eat breakfast together and we talk about what's going on in our lives and we talk about what we what we all need at the moment, you know, and I think that that's really been the only thing that's been holding me in the sense of like, um, there are friends of mine who, you know, they're not super Christian, like, you know, some are, and then I have a few friends who are very much devoted into their Christian faith, but I think the idea of just having the support of knowing people who know your struggle and know your journey and being able to talk openly with them about what's going on in your world, specifically now that my world is so riddled with racism and COVID, um, it's just been, it's been nice to be able to say that I have, you know, what I like to refer to as chosen family, so. I love yeah. that, love, love that, that. I was just gonna say same, I love that uh, concept of church as just, people you sit around and eat a meal with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, the sharing of meal, the sharing of spaces, and, and Dr. John Paul, I would say, you know, for us in Trinidad, it's very much the same um, in terms of maybe the timing of our lockdowns may, may, may be a little different, but I remember for California specifically, they were one of the first cities to really lock things down. And I think mm -hmm. you guys got things under control. And now, you know, it's in like the second wave and things are spiking again, so they're rolling back. Um, and Trinidad, you know, we're in our second lockdown also, you know, so we've been very much feeling the effects of, you know, COVID and, and not being able to congregate. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, only just two weeks ago, the, the Trinidad opened back up churches at 50% capacity. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, I know that we have um, extended some question and answer. Um, we've put it out there for folks. Mm -hmm tuning in, you know, feel free to send us your questions um, in the question at the bar. I think there's one, one of the main topic that I wanted to kind of move on to, um, especially as we don't have any questions. And so after this, 
Um, yeah, we'll see if we have any questions. And if not, you know, we'll go from there. So one thing I wanted to kind of bring us into is the now, you know, the 2020 um, and beyond just 2020, the current um, cultural global zeitgeist that's happening and where we find ourselves currently and also from a perspective of joy, right? Bringing, bringing back joy, bringing back um, pride, um, not necessarily, you know, the commercialized sense of what that word pride takes on, but our own inter internalization of pride. And so I wanted to throw it out to you guys. How in this current time do you find you drawing on both aspects of your identity, both being in queer, both being, you know, the, especially that aspect of coming from African diaspora, African heritage, African um, blood. How do we draw on that in the now in a way which brings us joy, um, inspires joy outwardly to others? And, you know, what, what are the joys from that now in, in, this, in this time, do you guys feel like? I feel, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I, I, and this connects a little bit to your previous question too. Um, what that's been about for me is recognizing that um, blackness and queerness aren't things that I have to aspire to. They already exist in my body. They're, I have proximity to them. I have access to them. And there's no definition outside of myself, right? And so since a lot of my, my work is um, around embodiment within the performance space and writing and storytelling, uh, I've been drawing on those aspects of my identity in, in, in those realms. And so in a way I'm trying, I think that sense of transcendence, I feel in church, you know what I mean? When a real good worship and praise song come on, I feel that when I'm moving, I feel that freedom when I'm writing, you know, um, I feel that sense of like, spirit you know like moving with a current that's beyond my own and so my process has been to kind of um to acknowledge that both of those threads run simultaneously together they intertwine the blackness and queerness within me and they don't need they don't need language they don't need definition and um my the the prerogative of my work is really to find find the story, like find the movements that, that the body's yearning for and trust that in those stories and in those movements and in those dances, all of the definitions are there. You know what I mean? All of the expressions of queerness and blackness and, um, are there. And yes, sometimes the story would name it as such. Uh, sometimes the story might grapple with different definitions of it. Um, but yeah, I, I just start from a place of of um, of knowing that I have access, you know, um, by virtue of, of my body. Yeah. 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 I love, love that. that. Yeah, Dr. John Paul. Yeah, I think for me, so I think one of the biggest things that I have been very, I think, intentional about is specifically as a writer um, this year, and I think this is what has been help, you know, has helping me is when I first kind of started, right, so I got my degree, I got my doctorate degree in 2015, and I did my doctorate degree on the experiences of queer 
um, queer men of color in higher education. And I, you know, we talked about unpacking pain and all of these different pieces. And a lot of my work when I started teaching, when I started lecturing, and when I started writing was very much about how do we spotlight, you know, the emotional and the harmful things in the ways that the world works to harm Black queer people specifically, right? And then I got to a place where I started rereading some of my articles and I was going, there's no joy here. <laughs> like it's always talking about the pain and the hurt that we carry. And so at the top of this year, I made it a point to myself to say, I'm no longer going to write anything or, or create anything that doesn't center this notion of what, how happy and how amazing it is to be black and queer. And I will be honest and say that there have been some opportunities that have fallen to the wayside honestly, because of COVID, but I also think part of it too is when you take that stance and you say, I'm not going to let, you know, society and this world continue to stroke, you know, their own egos about giving quote unquote Black queer people a voice to talk about only their pain, um, people start to pull back. And I think that that's been the biggest thing is me saying that a bigger part of really just kind of owning all of this and really thinking about ways that I can add, um, to the, add to the very much, like, I mean, again, I go back to James Baldwin, I go back to Audre Lorde, I go back to even Marsha P. Johnson right here. These are very, very, very important people in, you know, in, in terms of our own history around queerness. And I think that I, I, I think when I start talking and thinking about what my own legacy is, I genuinely in a place where I am starting to say like a big part of me bridging my blackness and my queerness is leaving behind words and experiences and stories that are going to help build uh, Black queer people up versus only talking about the things that are meant to tear us down. Um, and changing the rhetoric too around the ways that we engage one another, right? Like, so this is very, you know, fulfilling for me that I get to sit here with, you know, not only just two queer Black people, but queer Black people that are, are from different places in the world and not being able to just, you know, and, and knowing that both of your perspectives are going to help shape the way that I see my own work in the future too. And I think that that's been the biggest thing is just opening my myself up to this notion that being Black doesn't have to look one way, being queer doesn't have to look one way, being Black and queer doesn't have to look one way, and that the way that I present and that I quote unquote perform, I, I hate the word perform, but the way I perform my Blackness and my queerness is meant for me, and if, like I said, if it speaks to other people, then that just means that I'm living out my, I, I, I'm doing what I'm meant to do and what I'm supposed to do. So I'm just looking, you know, I'm in this place now where I'm looking at both of those identities and I'm saying, how do I utilize each of them to really help other people understand what their purpose is here in this world and how I can use both of those to kind of rewrite the legacy that has been quote unquote meant for us um, in the years to come. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Love, 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 love that. I mean, are you were gonna say something? I was gonna say I really resonates with with that um, using kind of like seeking to build people up in that sense. Mm -hmm. I resonate with that. Um, and and um, and in a recent performance uh, that Zoe and I did actually, uh, it's, it's it's interesting because it's kind of a contradictory, right? I write from personal experiences, and I I from the beginning of the process, I have to believe that in these narratives, there's some good for somebody else, you know? 
And so I had a conversation after that performance with another young black queer Trinidadian who's also, you know, studied abroad. And one of the most beautiful things from that conversation was that he said, he said, felt seen, you know, um, by this work. Uh, and I agree with you completely, is, is that we, we tell stories in service of our people. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and it's really a meaningful thing when, when people can find community in the work, you know, find church in the work, like find spirit in the work. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for your memoir too, Dr. Jean-Paul. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's, it, and, and I think that that's the other thing I think not write, I think what I had to learn, because I was so ready to write in a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm gonna write a memoir. Um, and then I lived outside of my degree for like three and a half, four years, and then I was like, okay, what do I really want to say? And I think that, I, I think if I would have done it like uh, four years ago, I think I would have been writing from a place of her and 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 in a place that I don't think is going to help anyone really. Um, and I think now that I've been in therapy for two and a half years, um, that I am on medication, that I am, <laughs> that I'm doing everything to fully take care of myself the way I'm supposed to, um, that the writing and I think that the stories are going to hit different. And I think it's also not even just at one point it was about me and now I'm looking at my memoir and going, it's not about me, it's not about my experience, but it's ultimately how I can help other people process their own. So I think I, I, I'm also excited to write it. I just need to sit down and put pen to paper, but it'll get it'll get done when it gets done. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And um, Amir, you know, so I'll just also throw up there to you, you know, what are you, what are you currently, um, working on. We, we're supposed to have some Q&A, but we don't have any questions. So I think we're going to take the opportunity um, to kind of just wrap up here. Um, so yeah, I'll throw that question out to you. You know, what's, what's, what's kind of on the, the forefront mm -hmm. of what you're working on? I just came out of a performance with you that was directed by Zoe. Uh, it was a, uh, called Pray Daddy and it was a coming out letter to my late father. And so in that, you know, questions about the capacity of the body to be a prayer, right? Um, and traverse the distance to deliver this message and then also finding voice within oneself to say the thing that has been unuttered and to say it across the void, uh, all of that jazz. And so now that I finally have voice and I finally reclaim this space and this body, I feel more ready to, 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 to do more, um, you know, public facing things. So probably gonna start back up my ASMR and work some more on music and, and video making and dance making. So I'm excited about those for the coming months. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And Dr. John Paul, do, do you have a, a release date for your memoir yet or so? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we're still in the very beginning, you know, phases. I actually am really happy because I actually have um, an agent who is interested in it and she has okay. been giving me notes about the proposal. Um, and I recognize that everything is a process. And I think that that's been the biggest thing that I've also learned um, is making sure, and this is something else I think that ties into this notion of like love is love, really recognizing and finding people who genuinely want to work with me because they love my story and they love me and that they don't see me as something that they can just profit off of. Um, I think that is so imperative for me to share with people that are here 
um, or that will rewatch this is to make sure that, you know, because again, um, capitalism is everywhere. I think capitalism from, you know, up to down, it's everywhere. And, and yeah, it helps make the world move. But I also think about it in a way that oftentimes people genuinely want to profit off of our stories, but they genuinely are not attached or connected to them. And so I've been really taking my time with my with both my manager and my and the, the agency that I work with to really finesse out who are the people that are genuinely interested in making sure that my story when I do decide to give it to the world, considering the following that I have and the work that I've done, will genuinely say, I still see Dr. John Paula in that story. And that's kind of been my number one MO in the last couple of months, so. Lovely, 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 lovely. Well, I wanna take this time to acknowledge what a dynamic, um, beautiful, genuine, and educational conversation I feel like we've had tonight, mm -hmm. you know. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. Yeah, so Dr. John Paul, thank you so much. To Amir Hall, thank Thanks. you so, so much. I am your conversation lead, Zoe Sazel.